Hey, it's Adam. Welcome to our weekly teaching podcast here at South Hills Church in Corona, California. Our hope is that as you listen in, you'll find yourself laughing and learning and being challenged and encouraged to grab hold of who God has made you to be. Enjoy the message. message is says who says who this is something that I have heard my kids say to each other many many times before Um, I have three kids with my wife Gretchen uh, Tegan who's our oldest and then our two boys who uh, are getting feisty and uh, in fact I brought a picture of them today this is us uh, the three of us together when we took our family photos. This is probably the sort of family photos you guys take too, right? Like they're like, Dad, we should do one just us. And I was like, yeah. And uh, they're like, let's do a tough one. And uh, this is our version of a tough one. And uh, like just live in our best thug life in Norco. And so that's what we do. And, uh, and so one of the things that just happened recently, we, we redid the room. We, they've had the same sort of bedroom set up for a long time. And, and so they wanted a bunk bed, and we got them a bunk bed, and now they have so much more room for activities. It is amazing. And so we got them two little desks, and they can do their homework there. And we, as parents, we view them as homework desks. They view them as video game centers, okay? They, they think a little bit differently. Their, their perspective is a little bit different on that. And uh, they, they have these, these little screens, and we have them on a timer. And my kids, especially my boys, would spend their entire lives just playing video games. Um, they, they love it, and they're always trying to milk more time, which we make them earn by doing their chores and, and schoolwork and all that sort of stuff, and they're always trying to get a little bit more out of us. And usually, like, when it's, there's a timer that we set, and when the time is up, they have to get off. Of course, oftentimes they have a headset on and they can't hear, so sometimes when the timer goes off, one of us has to go in and tell them, hey, your time is up on the video game and you know usually maybe I'm the only parent that this happens so I go and I'm like hey you guys got five minutes like yeah okay okay and then like hey guys it's a one minute and they're like okay yeah I just uh," and I'm like time's up they're like yeah I just gotta finish can I just finish this one little thing and in my head I'm thinking oh yeah 30 seconds to wrap this game in their mind 30 minutes just to wrap this one thing we have we see it differently is all I'm saying the way we view like real quick is like real quick and yet when I'm like hey would you guys help me with the dishes real quick they never think 30 minutes, so just, uh, you guys just let them know it's a two-way street, okay? Every once in a while, though, my wife and I are busy when the timer goes off, so we have to tell one of the other kids, like, hey, can you go in and tell your brother that his time is up? And uh, they love doing that. Like, I, I, do your kids love that? L- loving to go in and tell another kid, you have to stop doing the thing you love right now and come be bored with the rest of us. And so one of my kids will go in, and, and they're like, hey, time's up. Um, you got you to be done. You got to get off. And they'll always ask the same question every time. Says who? Right? Because they're like, listen, we're both kids. Right? You, like, you don't have authority over me. You're not the boss of me. You don't get to tell me what to do. I don't have to do what you say. Like, the only reason why I would trust or obey or listen to you is if somebody else who has more power than you, told you to tell me. So says who? And they love to be like, mom said, right? Like dad said to tell you that mom said, you know what I mean? Like they, because she has the real authority, right? They love to bring that in there. 
And then, of course, once somebody drops that and they're like, okay, I'll just go tell, I'll just go tell dad that you didn't want to do what he said. They're like, oh, no, I'm done, I'm done, right? <laughs> they get done real quick. And as crazy as this sounds, as childish as this sounds, it's not really. Because this is a question that, like, we all care about in all of our lives when it comes to different things. Because the reality of it is, whether you are a kid playing video games or whether you are an adult trying to figure out like what is okay at work or like what we're doing or what's acceptable or should I take this advice or make this investment, right? We all wanna know like says who? Because when it comes to instructions, who gave them heavily influences how much we trust them. How many of you have realized that this is true for you? Oh, uh, you should do this. Mm, says who, right? I want to know where you're getting your information. Where is it coming from? We want to know why should I listen to you about this? I, I want to know, like, what are your credentials? On what authority? Like, why should I trust you? And there are probably some people that you shouldn't listen to on certain subjects, I'll just tell you some of mine. If you're broke, I don't want your investment advice. <laughs> Not interested. Uh, you know what you should do? You should really get into, what are you doing? Uh, I, I just filed for bankruptcy. I'm, uh, you know, I'm done. You know what I mean? I, uh, I've got a lot of credit cards. I'm like, you know what? Maybe I don't take this advice from you, right? If you're skinny, I don't want your restaurant recommendations. <laughs> no, I don't trust you, Okay. I want somebody who's like a little bit chubby, you know what I mean? Really struck. They're like, I work out every day. And you're like, you work out every day? They're like, yeah, but I love to eat. And I'm like, where? Where are you going? I trust you, right? Like, I want to, I will take those instructions from you, right? Or like, if you are my 13-year-old daughter, okay? Uh, you don't care what your dad thinks about how cute your outfit is. Because I try and tell her, and she's like, Dad, you don't know. You're just like an old man, okay? You're not like a cute teenage boy or like a fashion blogger. You don't know. And I'm like, I know some stuff. <sighs> I don't. But I like to pretend like I do. And she doesn't listen to me, right, because she doesn't care. She's like, you're not really my target audience. I'm not really like, is a dad going to like this? I don't care. And it's not really bad that we do this, right? It's not bad that we sort of sort out, you know, which sources we're going to, to pull in and trust and which ones we're, we're not, right? Because getting, giving every source or granting every source um, the same level of authority guarantees a life of anxiety. And there's a lot of people who are living very anxious lives because everything everyone says on every subject seems equal to them. And that's not the way that things work. Not everyone is an expert on everything. Okay? And, and in fact, even if they were, you would still have to pick and choose because taking in all of the information is going to be overwhelming. Like you cannot take it all in. You have to make some decisions. It'd be impossible. And, and in all honesty, if you need everyone to validate and approve of and agree with and like you, you are going to constantly feel scattered and empty in life. Everyone's opinion on every single subject is not and cannot matter equally. And so the question that we all have to wrestle with 
in every imaginable area of our life is who and what can we trust? Have you asked yourself this question any more than you have this last year and a half? Who and what can we trust? Oh, I got some, I got some advice for you. I got some stuff you should do. Uh, I, don't, I don't know. Because who says it, man, that shapes how much I trust it. And so who and what can we trust? Whose statements should we put stock in? Whose opinions should we accept? Whose advice should we take? These are great questions that we should be wrestling with. And in fact, people always have. Uh, when, you, when you kind of go back through the halls of history, when you look at the time when Jesus began preaching and teaching and challenging the status quo of his day and, and, and handing out instructions and telling people how he believed they ought to live and think and treat people, they had the same question for him that all of us probably would. That we have for people that are trying to give us instructions in our day. And in fact, it's recorded right here in Matthew chapter 21. We can read all about it. Verse 23, it says this. When Jesus began teaching, the leading priests and elders came up to him and they demanded, by what authority are you doing all these things? Who gave you the right? It's like I can almost, I can almost hear my boys sitting at a video game center. Says... Who? You sounds like you got a lot of opinions. You got a lot of advice and instructions. Sounds like you got a lot of things you think I should do. Says who? By what authority? Who gave you the right? You're trying to give me some instructions, but we all know that when it comes to instructions, who gave them heavily influences how much I'm going to trust them. And so where are you coming from? And I think before we can, we can spend eight more weeks on the Sermon on the Mount. I think it makes sense to sort of slow down and wrestle with who is it that's giving this sermon? And like, why does what they have to say matter on these topics? And to attempt to answer that, uh, I want to read you what happens right before Jesus gives the Sermon on the Mount and, and what happens right after. And I want to connect the dots as to why I think these bookends are significant because I think if we understand what's happening right before and right after holistically, if we understand its significance, we will listen to the rest of it, everything that happens in the middle, much differently. And so we're going to begin at the very beginning, Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. This is the setup. It says this, one day, as he saw the crowds gathering, Jesus went up on the mountainside and sat down. And his disciples gathered around him, and he began to teach them. Whew. Did you get your life changed yet? Mind-blowing, right? Now, here's the thing. There actually is a ton of really insightful information here that sets the stage for a lot. But the significance that is, is found in these couple verses, a lot of us don't see because we are not first century Jews. And so like some of the stuff that seems so obvious to the crowd who is hearing this and seeing this and reading this or experiencing this for the very first time, they're cued into certain things that we just skate right over. And so what I wanna do is I wanna clue you in to what's actually happening. One of the things we say in our, in our Discover 
two class is, is that when it comes to scripture, you, you have to know what it meant to them then before you can know what it means to you now. In other words, wisdom requires context. Wisdom requires context. So what, what actually is going on here? Like the things that we're going to read, like who, who said it and who did they say it to and when did they say it and where did they say it and why did they say it and what else is going on and, and what about their society or their economy or their culture or language is different than ours? And how do those differences maybe change the interpretation of everything we're about to read? I mean, context is everything, right? And you already know this. And you've wrestled with the difficulty of trying to place something complicated into context. You ever tried to explain a rap lyric to an elderly person? It's almost impossible. It's complicated, right? I mean, even if you handed them the text, right, the typed out lyrics, and you're both reading them out loud, they're going to hear something completely different than you do, right? And what are you going to need to do? They're going to be like, uh, well, I assume it means this. And you're going to be like, no, that's not, that's actually, that word doesn't mean that at all. And those words are kind of made, and that's actually, okay, listen, here's the deal, Grandma. When Cardi B was pregnant, she got into a beef over Twitter. Wiz Khalifa wasn't involved, but he kind of was. And then this whole thing happened, and they're like, are, are these even real people? Are these actual names? What are you saying right now, right? There's all these layers of context and meaning, that reframe and change and reshape the entire situation. If you don't know the context, then it's really difficult to draw out the wisdom. Now, what I would guess about you is like whatever elderly person you are engaged in conversations about rap music with on a regular basis, and I hope you are, they're probably one, maybe two generations removed from you. Now, the stuff that we're reading here happened a couple thousand years ago in a society, in a culture that couldn't be more different from ours. They're speaking a different language than ours. They have a bunch of different customs than ours. How much more context do we need to clue ourselves into to understand the significance of what's happening? Now, you know, when you think of the Sermon on the Mount, maybe you, like me, you think of, like, an old framed picture in a church basement prayer room, you know, something like this. It always has Jesus on the, on the side of a hill and he always has his hands up. You know, I, when I was a kid, I always thought he was like, he just made a joke and was like, oh, no, seriously, guys, seriously. <laughs> okay, no, for real, for real. Okay, speaking of Herod, and then he went into a thing, like he was about to go into a thing, right? And the one thing I love about this one is like there's the soldier it, like, who's in the foreground of the picture who's like, no, I wanted to sit up front. And he's like all mad. <laughs> oh, it's just so good. But as you can probably imagine, like even though this painting was painted a long time ago, like this isn't even an accurate picture of what was really happening. I mean, for example, and this, this may blow your mind, but Jesus wasn't white and probably didn't have a perm. Okay, that's just a starter kit. But there's a lot more going on here. And what I want to do is I want to clue you in to some things that are happening in these very first two verses before the sermon even gets underway that all the other people who are listening to this in the original audience would have known that maybe we don't. And the, one of the first things it says, right, it says that Jesus, he, he sat down and he began to teach. Now, this is not something unusual, and it's not even just something that Jesus did. 
to give you context again, Jesus is a, a Jewish rabbi. The Jews believe that, that God gave Moses, right? He's one of their forefathers. He, he gave him a set of instructions that they called Torah or the law. And they believed that the point of life was to learn and to align yourself or to live out these scriptures. The trouble is they aren't all really super straightforward, so what the Jews believed was that Torah had to be wrestled with, right? It, 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 like this wisdom that was given to Moses by God, like it, it had to be placed into context. It had to be interpreted and explained. And that's what rabbis did. A, a rabbi was essentially a Jewish spiritual teacher who contextualized, interpreted, and applied Torah, how Torah ought to be lived out in everyday life. Now, you know, the rabbi's goal, every single rabbi's goal was to try and get as close as possible to what God originally intended by the text. Now, as you can imagine, though, not every rabbi agreed. And if you've, if you've ever met a Jewish rabbi, they still don't agree and they pride themselves on it. It's kind of the way it was. And in fact, different rabbis had different sets of interpretations, explanations, and applications, like their version of how Torah was to be lived out. And that set for that rabbi was called his yoke. And that's what Jesus is doing here. As Jesus sits down on the side of this mountain and he begins to teach, he begins to speak, what he is doing as a Jewish rabbi is he is outlining his yoke, his set of explanations, interpretations, and applications. And who is he telling this to? There's a huge crowd that's gathered, but they're kind of just eavesdropping because he's really talking to a core group of people, a group of people that are referred to as the disciples. And what, is, what does that mean? Like, what is a disciple? A disciple is essentially a, a devoted student. And Jesus wasn't the only one who had them, okay? Lots of different teachers during this time in history had disciples. The rabbi-student model was uh, very, like, popular during the Greco-Roman world. Uh, religious leaders had disciples. Philosophers had disciples. Uh, intellectuals had disciples. Um, a lot of people sort of followed this model. And the goal was different than, than we kind of view the goal of maybe a teacher today. The goal was to fully embrace the teacher's philosophy of life. It wasn't just to like learn and sort of know what the rabbi knew, but it was to live how the rabbi lived which as you can imagine is like, that's a full-time gig. That, this is like completely immersive. And because it was, many students, many disciples left home, left their jobs, left what was familiar to them to completely follow and be devoted to their rabbi. Now this like couldn't be more different than our culture today. I mean, imagine like that you did this with a professor at community college. You know what I mean? You're just like the intro to psych professor. You're just like, Rabbi Phillips, is it cool if I live in your car with you? I just want to do what you do and smoke as many cigarettes as you smoke and drink the bad coffee you drink and teach me in the ways of your divorce. So it's like, that's, that'd be weird. We don't really do that. That's not really how we do things. So you're talking about a totally different type of world. A world in which following a rabbi was the noblest thing that you could possibly do. To take a rabbi's yoke 
upon you to practice their philosophy of life as if it were your own. And oh, maybe you're thinking, like, why would you do that? That sounds like a big commitment. And, and the reason why people became disciples was because they, they wanted to make the most of their existence. Like, they didn't want to just sort of live how everybody else was living. They looked around, and they're like, I don't want to be average. There's a lot of people who seem to be stressed and frustrated and miserable and oppressed, or they're chasing after things that make them feel hollow and empty. I don't want that. I want something better. Like, I want to live the most fulfilling life possible. Like, for these people, becoming a disciple wasn't about being a part of a religion. It was about aligning yourself with ultimate reality. It was about learning to live the way God meant life to be lived for human beings. So Jesus, who is a, a traveling Jewish rabbi, is teaching the disciples how to get the most out of their lives by taking on his philosophy, and he does this on a mountainside. Maybe you're thinking, like, a mountainside certainly doesn't have, like, a depth of meaning. Actually, it does. That's why I mentioned it. Because the reality of it is, again, you know, a rabbi, his role was to interpret Torah, which was given to Moses by God himself, where? On the side of a mountain. Mount Sinai. Moses went up, right, and he met with God, and God gave him his law, the Torah, and Moses brought it down, right? There's that, the, the painting you've probably seen with, like, Moses holding the Ten Commandments, and he gives the people those ten things, but he also gives them all of the Torah, all of the law and the rules that God expects people to live by during his time in history. Like, Moses, for these people, was the authority, and Matthew is intentionally leveraging this imagery. And the message that the people would have picked up on by, by, by using these words and saying it this way is that Jesus is the new Moses, but better. Because Jesus isn't going to just interpret the law. Jesus is going to reframe it. Jesus is going to revive it. Jesus is going to Make it new. In fact, Jesus' authority is greater than Moses. Now, there couldn't be anything more, uh, you know, big or more blasphemous to say to this group of people at this time in history than this statement. That Jesus is the new Moses, but better. And Jesus' audience would have immediately clued in to all of this imagery that most of us miss when we read over these first two verses. And because they would have caught all this stuff, their expectations would have been exponentially higher than most of ours are. And then after this like two-sentence setup, Jesus speaks. In fact, the, the recorded version of it, he speaks for three chapters, right? Chapter 5, chapter 6, and chapter 7 of the book of Matthew. The rabbi gives his set of interpretations and explanations and applications as to how best to live and get the most out of your existence. And, and he does this to a very highly skeptical audience. And when he's done, this is their response. It says this in Matthew chapter 7, on the back end of the sermon, verse 28 and 29, it says, When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds 
were amazed at his teaching, for he taught with real authority, quite unlike their teachers of religious law. Well, some of you are like, mm, that sounds like a slam. It is, right? Now, what does that mean, though? Like, what does it mean that Jesus taught with real authority, unlike any other rabbi that they'd heard? So much so that crowds of skeptical people are like, Psh, this guy, whoa, what's going on here? This is different. This is interesting. In, the, in this culture that, that's deeply rooted in tradition, rabbis were taught and trained by other rabbis. Now, that makes sense, right, to be apprenticed by someone who's doing the job that you want to do. In fact, most rabbis taught the yoke of another rabbi, another well-respected rabbi. In other words, um, the, the ideas that this person is presenting didn't just sort of drop out of thin air. They're, they're based on something. There is, there's, there's credentials that this teacher has. It'd be like if somebody was advising you on what to do. You just got a cancer diagnosis and you're, you're, you're incredibly distraught. And someone is like, well, listen, this is what you, you ought to do. This is what you should make. And you're like, oh, okay, hold it. Time out. Where did you get that from? And they're like, oh, don't worry, from my cousin. And you're like, your cousin? Okay. I mean, I, I hate to be skeptical, but like, why, why would I care what your cousin has to say? What would you want to know? What are his credentials? Who taught him? Why should I trust him? Why would he know anything? On what authority does he have anything good to say? And maybe if that person said something to you like, well, interesting that you would ask, he did graduate top of his class, Harvard Medical School, and now is the chief of surgery specializing in cancer treatment at the Mayo Clinic. And at that point, you would be like, Oh, what did he say? Uh, let me write that down real quick. Was that, that was, that was two kale shakes a day that I had to say? Okay, yeah, absolutely. I love it. It's my favorite thing in the world. And suddenly you care, right? Because where these instructions are coming from, it determines how much we, we trust them. And in a rabbinic culture, there are a lot of different schools of thought. And people wanted to know, where did you get your training? Whose ideas are you building your ideas off of? And every once in a while, a rabbi would come along who was teaching a yoke that you weren't familiar with, who was teaching a new yoke, who had a different set of explanations and interpretations and applications. And the biggest thing you wondered was, how do we know that what this person is saying is valid? Can we trust what they have to say? Where do they get their authority? In other words, says... Who? And the crowds listening to Jesus, before they really know the answer to this, their reaction is that there is something different about the way he teaches. There's something fresh about it. There's something powerful. There is something deeply relatable and applicable and exciting and encouraging but challenging and, and sort of mind-bending and paradigm-shifting. And in truth, Jesus, he kind of always had this sort of otherworldly insight. There's this, there's this one story about Jesus from the book of Luke where his, his parents, Mary and Joseph, uh, they, they take him on this trip for this big uh, religious festival. 
and they, they'll go to Jerusalem and everybody is in Jerusalem and they, they do everything they're going to do and they get ready to leave and they, they get like a couple miles outside of the city on their way home and, and his mom is just like, Where, where's Jesus? And he was like, I thought he was with you. And they're like, what? And then they start, and the mom starts panicking and she starts freaking out and they're all freaking out and nobody has seen him. And so they go, they turn around, they go all the way back to Jerusalem. They look everywhere. They can't figure out where Jesus is. And it says that they finally find him in the temple. And he is teaching the religious teachers as a child. And it says they're blown away by the insight he has as an uneducated child about the way the world really works. That's kind of mind-blowing. There's another moment that some of the first disciples would have experienced on the outskirts of, along with Jesus, where Jesus is beginning his ministry, and uh, he goes and he wants to get baptized, and he asks his cousin, who's John the Baptist, who's like a famous prophet at the time, uh, to baptize him, and something happens in the middle of this baptism that is otherworldly, that is supernatural, that really hadn't happened uh, before and it really hasn't happened since. Like he dunks him under the water and he brings him up and the, the spirit of God descends upon him like a dove and there is this voice, this loud booming echo that says, this is my son who I love and in whom I am well pleased. And everyone is just sort of stunned in this moment, realizing that there is something special and significant about Jesus. And actually, the more you dig into the Jesus story, the more it seems like he, he doesn't sound like other rabbis because his direct source of authority is something more significant than other rabbis. Listen to the way that one of his disciples, John, says it in what I think is one of probably the most mind-blowing sections of Scripture in the entire Bible. John chapter 1 Verse 1 says this, in the beginning, the word already existed. Now, the word is this Greek word that's being used, logos, right? Or truth, reality, the basis of all things, everything that we're trying to get at. In the beginning, the truth already existed. The word was with God and the word was God. So God is the source of truth. He existed in the beginning with God. So now truth is being personified as a he. God created everything through him. And so the word became human. Truth becomes a person and made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness. And we have seen the glory of the Father's one and only Son. For the law was given through Moses, but God's unfailing love and faithfulness came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the unique one who is himself God has revealed God to us. So truth has existed since the beginning of time. God is the source of truth. And in fact, truth 
occupies a person that was present at the beginning of time. Then truth becomes a person who is born in a human body and exists during a window of history to show us what God is like, how God thinks, and how God has designed us to live. And what all this is telling us is that Jesus doesn't have a source of truth because Jesus is the source of truth. In fact, this isn't just something that all of these people who are following Jesus are saying about him and writing about him and convinced enough about him that they will die on behalf of it. It's something that Jesus says about himself. In John chapter 14, verse 9, Jesus says, you may have heard this before, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. Jesus is, is saying through this, like, I embody the best way to live, the truth about reality and the meaning of life itself. I am God in human form. Now, if that is true, this is a person we might want to listen to. Just going to throw that out there. In fact, Jesus himself says this is a good idea. Now notice that I said before that, that Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is essentially outlining his yoke. And then later in the book of Matthew chapter 11, he says this about the things that he says in the Sermon on the Mount. He says to his disciples, take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you because I'm humble and gentle at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. There's that word again, yoke. And Jesus is saying to these people, like, I have unique insight into the way the world works and what it means to truly be human. And I'm telling you, if you lean in and you listen and you live out what I am saying to you, you will experience everything your soul is after. Let me show you the way the Jews at this time in history would have heard him to say that he is promising them the thing that every Jew is seeking, and that is shalom, defined as divine peace, balance, and wholeness. He's saying that if you follow me, if you become my disciple, if you take my teaching seriously, if you apply my philosophy of life to the way you live your life, you will experience divine peace, balance and wholeness at the core of your being. And like, I don't think this is just an ancient Jewish desire. Isn't this what you want? Like, let me put it in our vernacular. Like, don't you want to feel comfortable in your own skin? Don't you want to feel like like as opposed to like everyone's out to get you at all times and you constantly feel defensive and like, and like you're, you're, you're constantly trying to look over your shoulder. Like wouldn't it be great to feel at peace with God and others? To experience a, a complete lack of anxiety and striving and this like nagging like drive that you need to achieve and prove yourself because you are always defined by your next great accomplishment. Is this what you want, like to, to, to believe at the core of your being that nothing about you is permanently broken or, or missing? That you are who and where you are supposed to be 
at this moment that you are doing what God made you to do, that you are part of making the world as God intended it to be, and that no matter what you do or what happens to you or what happens in the circumstances or situations surrounding you, that you right now in this moment have access to joy. And Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is saying to these people, if that's what you're after, listen up. I'm about to tell you how. And this is the thing that I want you to understand. What happens right before Jesus gives the Sermon on the Mount is he goes and he invites people to follow him. He goes and he handpicks people and he says, come follow me. Not, not come pray a prayer so that you can get into heaven when you die someday and then do whatever you want. He says, come and follow me. Be my disciple. And they're like, maybe, what does that mean? And then they sit down and he, and he sits down in front of them and he begins to teach what he means by that. You see, Jesus wasn't just inviting people to put their faith in him, but to follow him. Not just to believe in him, but to behave like him. To fully embrace his philosophy of life. To become a devoted disciple. To take the things that he says so seriously that even the parts that seem unrealistic, you realize that through his power working in you, you can embody. And when you do, you will experience everything your soul desires. This is what's hanging in the air. This is what people understand Jesus to be doing. He's about to outline what it is he wants people to do, to experience what they are made to feel. That's the expectation in the air when Jesus sits down, when it says in Matthew 5, 1, that as he saw the crowds gathering, he went up on the mountainside and he sat down and the disciples, they gathered around him and he began to teach them. And here's what I think. I think if you fully understand the context of that moment that you, like the disciples, like the crowd on that day, who's not even sure they're totally bought in, are all on the edge of their seat. They're all focused. Their minds are open. They're listening intently. They're trying to understand and soak up and contextualize every word he's saying because there's deep significance to it. Because if he is who he says he is, then his instructions matter more than anything. And then he begins to teach. And what does he say? I mean, it sounds like you're going to want to come back for the rest of the series. Because we don't really have time to get into that. But here's what I want to leave you with on this week. The question isn't, whether Jesus is a rabbi, but whether you're going to choose to make him your rabbi. And that's where I think we have to begin this whole thing. 
It's great to sit down and listen to and consider the teachings of Jesus as a rabbi. It's a whole other thing to listen and consider the teachings of Jesus if he is your rabbi. Because it means that you believe that he has the words of life. It means that even when he says things that are uncomfortable, that are confusing, that are frustrating, that contradict the way you are already living your life, that you take it in and you begin to make changes. The people in Jesus' time and place, they called it conversion. When you are moving in one direction and you learn from your rabbi that you are off track and you begin to move in his direction, not yours. And this is the question I wanna begin with is that, have you done this? Have you chosen to make Jesus your rabbi, to place him at the center of your life, to say, like Jesus says to God, not, not my will, but yours be done. Every decision I make, everything that I do, every, the way that I treat people, the way that I spend my money, the, the thoughts that I hide away from everyone, all of it, all of it, I submit and surrender to you. I'm telling you, whether or not you make it into heaven when you die is not really up for grabs. This is a, a free gift that God gives you. But if you want to live life to the full in the here and now, there are some things that you are going to have to align with Jesus' will and Jesus' way. But it's all right here. What are you going to do with it? And this is what I want to give you an opportunity to step into today. Would you just, as a measure of focus, just bow your heads and close your eyes across the auditorium today? And I just want to place in front of you this challenge. I think Jesus does the same thing to us that he did to those people back then. There's this moment in which we can sense, we can feel that God who, who is, that Jesus who is truth personified is looking in our direction uh, saying like, hey, hey, follow me. I know it feels crazy. I know it feels like a change of direction. I know it feels like a lot, but I'm telling you what you were most desperate for is on the other side of this decision. And I wanna just extend his invitation to you today, the invitation to follow him. We, we call it saying yes to Jesus. It is the beginning of a discipleship journey in which we embrace Jesus as our rabbi, as our teacher, as our master, as our Lord and our savior. And if you're in a place today where you wanna make that decision with a resounding Yes, you want to take steps in that direction. Uh, with everyone's head bowed and eyes closed, I just want you to slip up a hand. I'm not going to embarrass you or call you out. I just want to know who I'm praying for this morning. I want to pray for you specifically that God would move in your life in a powerful way beginning today. Awesome. God, I know you see every hand raised. I know you see every heart. I know you see those who are in a place where they're really, really wrestling with this. 
it's difficult to hand our will and our way over to you. And God, I pray in this moment that you would flood the hearts of the people in this place with your presence, that we would have a sense that you are here, that you're real, that you love us, that you are for us, that your truth wants to lead us forward. God, we cannot even serve you without your help. And God, we in this moment surrender to you. We invite you to be the core of all of our decisions, of all of our thoughts, of all of our spending, of all of our allocation of time and energy. God, of the way that we approach everything. God, as we begin to tiptoe in to your teachings, God, may we take these things seriously because following you defines who we are. And God, may we experience at the core of our being with every step after you, a sense of divine peace, balance, and wholeness as we live out life in right relationship with you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Everyone said, amen. Thanks for tuning in to this week's message. We hope you heard something that spoke directly to where you're at right now in life. To find out more about our church, hit up our website, southhills.org slash corona, or follow us on social media at South Hills Corona. And if our messages have made a difference in your life, help us get the word out by rating and reviewing this podcast. And as always, you can support the ongoing work of our church by giving through our website at southhills.org slash give and selecting the Corona Campus. Thank you so much for listening. And we hope you'll join us again next week. God bless.